We turn in the Word of God to Matthew 11. Why should anyone surrender, submit to Jesus Christ? After all, that is the witness of Christians. At once we were rebels, but we have been brought to bow to Jesus Christ. But why should anyone else do so? The answer to that question is stated here by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I'm taking that very well-known text, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so our theme is simply this, Go to Jesus. But why? Well, that's why I read the portion that I did from verse 20. In order to answer that why question. Why go to Jesus? Why submit to Jesus? The first reason that the Savior gives is in verses 20 to 24. Eternal consequences. That's a very important reason. Eternal consequences. There have been many wicked places, wicked cities, and wicked people throughout human history. And the Savior lists some of them for you. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. And the Savior tells you that all these cities that were wicked, were destroyed. God destroyed these cities. The fall of Tyre and Sidon, you can read for yourself in Isaiah 23. The destruction of Sodom, as you know, is recorded in Genesis 19. And here we should pause, because it is evident that the Savior accepts the historicity as recorded in the Old Testament. That is very important. Those who bow to Jesus likewise accept the historicity recorded in the Bible. We take the same position as our Savior. Whatever is recorded, we are required to believe. We must believe. If we reject this history, then the whole message of Jesus falls to the ground because it lacks a solid foundation. But the Savior's whole argument that he's going to make here about eternal consequences starts with that history, which he then directly applies in his own ministry, the places that he went to. So that line is important. But why does it matter, you might say? Well, the answer is given for you in verse 21. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. 
For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And he repeats this point in verse 23. And thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee have been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. Eternal consequences. The Lord Jesus Christ tells you of the places that he preached and worked. Mighty works were done in these particular cities. Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. You begin to see the connection between then and now, so to speak. Tar, Sidon, Sodom had no Bible, yet they were destroyed by the wrath of God. Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom had no preaching stations in each of them, yet they were destroyed by God. Tyre, Sidon, Sodom were not visited by the Lord Jesus Christ, and they were destroyed. They were all destroyed for their sin and their wickedness. Their sins and their wickedness brought down upon them the wrath of God. The Lord makes it clear, had they received all the privileges that Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum received, those cities would have remained. They would have repented in sackcloth and ashes and would not have been destroyed. The Savior's solemn point is this. From his own lips, eternal punishment for those who do not repent, but more than that, the punishment for those who do not repent with all the privileges that they have received shall be greater than that eternal punishment for those without the same privileges. That is incredibly serious. In other words, to make it right up to date, it's as if the Lord says to us, woe to Lewis, woe to Stornoway, Woe to Scotland with all the privileges that you receive, with the heritage that you have, with so many gospel privileges, Bibles, preaching, Christians living in their midst, sacraments, 
fellowships, all of those privileges Lewis has received, Stornoway has received, Scotland has received. The damnation for Lewis, Stornoway and Scotland shall be greater than the damnation of Sodom. because of all the privileges that have been received. That those from Scotland, from the United Kingdom, when they are in hell, they would wish they had been in Sodom, where there were no privileges. But they were born in such a place in such a time where all of these privileges were known. Is there anyone living in Lewis who is ignorant of the existence of meeting houses up and down the country? Anyone in Stornoway who never heard that there were such a thing as Christians living in their midst, who never bumped into a Christian, never sat on the bus with fellow Christians who was totally oblivious to every meeting house with its lights on, Sabbath after Sabbath, where tracts have been distributed. The very charity shop has Bibles for sale. Here are all these privileges These cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, what a privilege. Jesus Christ walked those streets. He taught in those streets. He wrought great works in their very midst. Yet, he says, they did not repent. Woe, he says. The consequences for such shall be greater than all of the cities that perished in the past. Tyre, Sidon, Sodom. Sodom would have repented, he says, with the very same privileges. And you think of all those who come to meetings year after year. Some perhaps making no profession of faith, but come to the meeting house one communion season after another. Perhaps attending evangelistic services, maybe coming on the Lord's day. They leave the door as they came in, unmoved, unrepentant, indifferent. Do we not tremble at the consequences of such a person dying in their sin with all of those privileges? 
Do we not tremble over a city with all its privileges? We read in our history books of some of the great preachers of Scotland, perhaps of Lewis, even those who lived in Stornoway. The sermons still known, they are they're being reprinted. And yet, a land cold, rebellious, indifferent. What does it deserve? What shall be the eternal consequences? You don't need a PhD to work it out. The Savior tells you, woe, woe, he says. It shall be more tolerable for Sodom on the day of judgment. Their punishment will be less and the punishment upon all those who have had all these privileges. And yet repented not. Savior says, come unto me. Come unto me. Racken afresh with the consequences of not, he says. Consider the magnitude of what shall yet happen for not coming to me with all that you know, with all that you have heard, with all that you have received. Come unto me, says Jesus. Rutherford, I think it's letter three in this list of letters. He talks about the joy of one soul from Anwath would meet him in heaven. He understood the tragedy of a village with all the privileges yet remaining unrepentant. You understand why Christians take this seriously, don't you? That is why a Christian, you know, if they have loved ones unconverted, if they thought that having their arms and legs cut off would bring them to conversion, they would gladly do it. Isn't this why Paul said, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade? The eternal consequences of such, that's so enormous. Jesus says, come unto me. We note in verse 24, but I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment, and for thee. He simply reinforces the point. You cannot circumvent or avoid 
the eternal consequences. But then secondly, sovereign realities, verses 25 down to 27. It is immediately upon the solemnity of what he has just stated. We have this prayer by Jesus. It's unexpected. We don't expect it here. And yet it is here. And too often even preachers, I think, they move beyond it. They sort of read the passage because they really want to get to come on to me. But come on to me makes no sense unless you first deal with the eternal realities, the consequences, and then you must come to these sovereign realities. And how suitable the Savior's prayer is in this context. He prays to the Father. Beginning with thanksgiving, he expresses thanks to the Father for his sovereignty in the lives of people and cities. First, he refers to the Father hiding and revealing as it pleases him. Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them on the beards. The hiding and the revealing by the Father. The Savior doesn't shy away from this, as some preachers might shy away. The Savior sets it right before you. We must reckon with the Father in all of this. And second, the Son's knowing and revealing as he chooses. All things are delivered off to me of my Father. No man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. The Son knowing and revealing as he pleases. And remember the context, the eternal consequences. And what is to come, where he says, come on to me. Why should we bow to Christ? Well, the first reason is the eternal consequences. What's the second reason? Because of the sheer glorious sovereignty of the Son, the majesty, the magnificence, the grandeur of the Son, Jesus Christ. There are four great parallels here between the Father and the Son that we must take a minute or two with to clearly grasp so that we shall be full of awe in relation to the Son. Yes, we have the dark side, the eternal consequences. But here we have this grand and glorious side, the sheer majesty of Jesus Christ. The first parallel between the Father and the Son is of mutual exclusive knowledge. No one knows the Son except the Father no one knows the Father except the Son. There's a mutual exclusive knowledge that nobody else can enter into. 
the knowledge the Father has for the Son, the knowledge of the Son for the Father. Here's a knowledge no one can possibly possess, the knowledge that they have. The second parallel is a mutual necessity of both the Father and the Son to reveal each other for anyone to be saved. As the Father hid from the wise and the prudent, he hid from them the knowledge of the Son, but surprisingly reveals the Son unto babes. And also the Son reveals the Father to whomsoever he wills. The only possible way you can know the Father is through the Son. It's impossible to know God apart from Jesus Christ. The invisible God is made visible in the Son. And then the third parallel, that mutual lordship of Father and Son. As the Father is Lord of heaven and earth, so the Son can say, all things are delivered to me. The Father is Lord, the Son is Lord. The Lordship of the Father is the Lordship of the Son. And the fourth parallel, not only of mutual Lordship, but that mutual sovereignty of Father and Son. As the Father reveals what seems good in his sight, what is good to him, what pleases him, so the Son reveals to whomsoever he wills what seems good to him. There is that mutual sovereignty. So the point then is this. Whatever has happened, whatever will happen, reflects the absolute sovereignty of Father and Son. All of us are completely dependent upon the Father and the Son. Left to ourselves, we will ignore it all. It is in that context of the sheer absolute sovereignty of the Son that the Son announces, come unto me. Come to me precisely because you can't know the Father without me. Come to me because I am the revealer of the Father. You can't have anything belonging to God without the Son, Jesus Christ. At our fellowship last evening, 
And one brother said, I don't know what I will say to Jesus when I see him. Because of the magnificence of his person, the patience of the Son, and all that Jesus has done for us. So I say to any who are not converted, the sovereign Savior sends forth this command, come unto me. He can issue that command precisely because of what is stated in these two verses. Three verses, 25 to 7. It is upon the basis of his glorious, magnificent person that he with authority stands before these cities, condemns them, warns them, and then says, come on to me. All ye that labor under heavy later. He is not a paper king. He is a real, authoritative, majestic king. And this king says, You know nothing, you will have nothing unless it comes from me. Paul says the very same, doesn't he? You know, in that lengthy section in Ephesians 1, everything he speaks of, all the blessings, we're blessed, he says, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. But there's that little two-word phrase that runs through the whole section, in him, in him, in him. Why in him? Because he is the sovereign king. The Father gives us everything in him through the Son. Thirdly, gracious promises. Verses 28 to 30. Come on to me, all ye that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It is in light of the eternal consequences and the sovereign realities that the Savior gives this amazing call. What is found here in these words? Well, the first thing, of course, is the obvious. It is an authoritative word. Come is a command issued by the king. Yet this command is given as one who possesses the authority to give what he speaks of. That's why you see it is so essential to know the context. Why go to Jesus? The context tells you. 
he can't give me what he promises. So when he tells me, come, I must obey. When he says to me, follow me, I must follow. Isn't that what a Christian has done? The Lord drew near and said, follow me. We left all and followed him. The Lord came and said, come unto me. And we ran and fell at his feet. Because he is a king. It, remember, it is the son who says, woe. It is the son who prays with thanksgiving regarding this mutual sovereignty. So it is the son who says to us, come, come unto me. And second, it is an exclusive word. He says, come unto me. Now that is remarkable here, isn't it? Come to me, whom you have cursed. Come to me, whom you have in life denied. Come to me, whom you mocked and sneered at. Come to me, whom you laughed at, rejected, despised. Come to me. Come to me when you counted him as nothing, as one unworthy. But most striking of all, the Savior says, come to me, who will one day be your judge. And my verdict, says Christ, will be final. For it is into the Father's hand or into the Son's hand that the Father has committed all judgment, and it is the Son who will pass the sentence. He will either say welcome or depart. The sentence is final. And it is then this Son who says, come to me. An exclusive word. Thirdly, we must say it is a saving word. Come to me and I will give you rest. Ye shall find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He calls us to faith and salvation, to pardon and discipleship. It's not a call here to judgment. That day will come. No, this is a saving call. We find a similar phrase in John 7. And in verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. A saving word. That's the word of Christ, that sovereign son. You may say, perhaps to yourself, 
but I'm too bad to come. It is bad people that Jesus calls. What were all of us before we were converted? Were we saints already before we were converted? Whether you were converted at 10 or 40, you think we were good people? No, it's because we were bad sinners. He came to call not the righteous, not those who think we need no Savior, we need no salvation. He calls sinners. <laughs> you may say, but I have done so many bad things. Things so bad, I don't want anyone to know anything about. What says Christ? Come. Come on to me and I will give you rest. Indeed, you may go so far as to say, I think it is far too late for me to come. Look at how long I've lived in sin. Sin rules my life. Does Jesus say, well, you may forget it because I think you're right. No, he says, come. Come on to me, all ye that labor under heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ye shall find rest for your souls. There's the promise. It doesn't say if you're educated or uneducated, rich or poor, whether you're a naive sinner or a creative sinner, a sensitive sinner or a hardened sinner, with all your fears and questions and doubts, the Savior stands before sinners and with great authority. He says, come, come unto me and I will give you rest. Well, let's come to a couple of points of application. I remind you, first of all, there is no other way to heaven but by Jesus Christ, by this Son. This is the central declaration of all of Scripture. It lies at the very heart of the gospel. There are not different ways to God. We are not in any way pluralists. We can't be. There's only one way. And that is through Jesus Christ. You cannot know God. You cannot know the Father except through the Son. And the Savior is adamant about this, very clear about this. You must go to him. And secondly, 
I remind you of an earlier point. If you do not bow to the Son, the Father will hate you forever. John 3.36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. If you do not bow to Christ, if you do not come to honor the Son, if you do not love the Son, if you do not honor him and worship him and serve him and follow him, the Father will hate you forever. He will hate you forever. You are cursed forever. His wrath shall rest upon you for all eternity without one iota of change. Yet here we are this evening with this incredible blessing and this incredible privilege the word of Christ says, come unto me. Go to Christ. May the Lord bless these words to your hearts. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we come to the light of what the scripture teaches us. And oh, it is our prayer and the prayer of every believer in this meeting house that everyone who hears, as it were, the very voice of Christ, who has not gone to him, will run to him. Whether young or old, whatever their life has been, whatever they have said or done, whatever they have thought or planned, however many sins have been committed. The text says, from the lips of the Savior, come unto me. And all oh, we long, O oh Lord, that many shall indeed run to Jesus. And we pray for this whole land with all its privileges, with all its heritage. We tremble. We tremble because the Lord himself has reminded us Sodom would have repented. It would have remained. In its wickedness, it had no privileges. Perished. But this land has many privileges. This island has many privileges. The very city itself has had many privileges. Be merciful, we cry. Be merciful even in this congregation. Upon those who come but are yet outside of Christ. Be merciful. Draw them savingly to thyself.
May it please thee to do so. Knowing that there is joy in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. And we on earth shall be glad too. Oh, hear our prayer for Christ's sake. Amen. <laughs>